Wow, it's been a pretty wild week for me over here. What do you think, Johnny? Everything gold? Everything good? Wow. Wild. We've got all sorts of stuff going down, haven't we? We're not going to talk about um, FTX and how um, the CEO allegedly has given millions to your president. Nor are we going to talk about about how my prime minister, old Rushi, Rushi Senate was woken up at five o'clock this morning because evidently missiles were landing in Poland because our focus is just the boring old mundane of how some technology called blockchain is being used in different jurisdictions and digital assets, which it's, it's weird. Some people say, what do you do these days, Johnny? You, I explain that, you know, we're looking at how, where and why digital assets. And of course, they immediately think it's crypto. And I said, that's nothing to do with crypto. A lot of what we're talking about. And, and actually, the first article that we wrote in this week, you know, could the greenback from Uncle Sam, that's that's your good selves, uh, James, on your side of the pond. Um, could it be replaced by a greenbacked digital currency? Well, if we're talking about changing the world reserve currency, that's going to have major implications on nearly every economy in the world, uh, unless you're still on some sort of Easter Island and you pay for your bread and your you know, food by trading rocks. I'm about ready to. I think uh, if I could get over to McDonald's and, and barter like a watch, I'd be happy. <laughs> Would you like a couple of pebbles? <laughs> so so this 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 sort of inspiration for this idea really came um back we were looking at there's a there's a fairly well respected publication um here based out of the uk but i know it goes global called the economist oh, yeah. um and the economist back in the 1988 says a little while ago had a picture and we've got it in digital bytes this week so for any of the listeners that actually um, also get the weekly copy, which, um, you know, we, it, it's freely available. Um, we actually showed a picture and it was a picture of a phoenix, um, the, 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 the mythical bird that rose out of the ashes. And we've got the phoenix with its um, tail feathers on fire, um, surrounded by a bunch of burning US dollars. And it was talk, talking about get ready for a world currency. Um, and it just came to our attention. We looked at it and, sort of, and thought, well, okay, so here we are, sort of, you know, 40-odd years later nearly. Where, or 32 years later, where, well, 34, where are we? What's happening? What evidence is there that the US dollar's reign may be sort of coming to an end? Because, and I know we've discussed this in the in the past, and you may remember, James, um, you know, we've gone back to the sort of 1450s, when um, that's 1450, so that's, you know, over, over sort of 540-odd uh, years ago when the Portuguese um, currency was the world reserve currency. And then we saw a series of military conflicts, um, the Spanish knocked the Portuguese off, um, then the Dutch knocked the Spanish off, and then the French came along, and then the Brits. And then interestingly, the USA, and a lot of people... Outside of America, give 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 you know give the Yanks a bit of a hard time. Saying, oh well, you know they've blundered around the world and military conflict, but their currency replaced the um, the pound sterling, but it didn't do it in an aggressive military way. They didn't have imperialistic tendencies to invade current countries in that sense. They did it by sheer economic might, but that economic might is being challenged, and we're beginning to see current countries actually saying, no, I'm not going to pay for goods, typically oil, um, in, in, by using dollars. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, the Saudi and 
Arabians are now sort of looking to sort of start accepting Chinese yuan instead of dollars for sort of oil sales. And we're seeing the BRICS, who are, you know, Brazil, Russia, um, India and China. They, they had their first summit back in 2009. And that's now being joined by a number of countries. And they're now saying, well, yeah, OK, well, why don't we have, if you like, our own currency as a way to buy and sell major commodities rather than relying on the on the US dollar? And and this sort of, you know, we, we've got some statistics in here looking at the sort of the amount of money that's actually used um, in terms of when you exports and what currencies are, are being used. And you know, historically, the dollar has been very, very important. But we saw the sort of the rise of the euro. And I think the euro is quite an interesting one because, you know, prior to the euro, we had obviously the Deutschmark and the French franc and the Bessat and, and the drachma and stuff like that. But the share of export invoicing within Europe is predominantly, no surprise, the euro. And, and the US dollar is, is, is relatively small, you know, just over 20 percent. So you could see, if you like, a broad alliance of, of, of the BRICS, you know, going back to Brazil, Russia, India, China as examples, whereby they start using, um, if you like, their own currencies to trade and, and no longer use the dollar. And that undermines the sort of the power and the might of the dollar. So it led us to think, well, where does that lead us then going forward? Are we going to see um, a new currency challenge the US dollar? Because most of those other currencies, which I spoke about earlier on, they lasted for about 90, 94 years. The US dollar has been the world reserve currency for well over 100. So it's time for the US dollar to perhaps move to one side. And what's going to replace it? You know, the obvious one is, you know, will it be the Chinese one? Um, or are we, is it going to be some sort of digital currency? And that digital currency, what will it be backed by? You know, and we've spoken before, James, it could be backed by a basket of maybe, I don't know, real estate and equities and commodities and not governed by any one country but almost like an international currency or we sort of raise the question given that we've now got um you know all the cop 27 meetings going on at the moment because it's november the 16th as we're recording this so they're just in the middle of all the major governments coming together talking about what do we do about global warming well, could we see a digital currency whereby the underlying assets are based on the Amazon rainforest or based on some of the, um, you know, the, the beautiful prairie lands that you have in the States or some sort of, you know, peat bogs up in Scotland or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Because those natural lungs of the world that are able to try and mitigate some of the damage that um, people are concerned you know, humankind is inflicted on the world and causing climate change. Those natural areas arguably are going to become safer or not safer. They're becoming more and more valuable and therefore a price needs to be put on them. And the people in those countries, Brazil is a good example. I know they've got a new premier and they're talking about, well, I'm going to protect um, the rainforest. Well, if the world were able to actually help pay the government to protect them and then the government had an incentive because they were getting some sort of ongoing income, could you create some sort of digital bank asset backed by that very valuable land? So it was it was a question, really, and talking about a greenback currency as opposed to um, the, you know, the US dollar, which you know, colloquially is sometimes called um, the greenback itself. All I heard out of this was that the average dynasty 
lives uh, a lifespan of like 250 years. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. is 246 years old. Yep. So I would say a good four years of beta testing, as we know, we are, <laughs> as of yesterday, rolling out the beta testing for our CBDC. They've handpicked the banks. They've chosen. They've told them what's required. And it's going to be a beta program, I think, for a quarter of a year. I'd say you're on point. We're right on track. Yep. And that currency will become... I've actually... As people might not like how I say that, but I think that a uh, broader currency, especially in a distributed ledger, would um, allow for better social security, better welfare, more evenly distributed resources for those in need, as well as maybe we're tracking where money goes to important people. But we're not talking about that. But as long as it can maintain privacy, James, the, the, the worry has to be, you know, can the government see what you're spending with who and when and why? Um, and, you know, that, that goes against a lot of a lot of the uh, certainly in the West. There's a lot of people who are very, very uncomfortable. That I know we already have this in China. Um, it's not run on a blockchain, but it is a central bank digital currency. And the government know what's being spent by who, by when. And, and that's. I can see it from a government point of view. The government, it's a fantastic tool to attack the shadow economy, even in a very sophisticated economy like America or um, um, well, many parts of Europe. You know, the shadow economy is still 10 percent in places like Spain and Greece. It's 20 percent of the economy. Some of the African countries, it's it's 60, 70 percent of the economy. So governments need to find a way to to rein in and tackle that shadow economy because they're losing billions of dollars of tax if nothing else and being harbingers of you know of all sorts of nefarious actors because they can get a quite frankly get away with it so i can see why people are attracted by central bank digital currencies but the concern has to be is that at the expense of your own personal freedom and then suddenly there's social scoring done because saying johnny i'm afraid you've been told you're only meant to have 21 units of alcohol a week um or James, I'm sorry, but you've had, you know, you've actually upgraded your Big Mac three times this month um, and you mustn't, you know, have those extra portion of chips and a thick shake or what or whatever it may well be. And you've got someone who is then telling you how to lead your life and what to do and what not to do based on the money you're spending. It, it, I'm not sure that's what people really want. That's all. <laughs> We're going to be at Walmart going, are you sure you really want to buy an added hot dog? <laughs> Denied. Denied. Go and buy some more supplements or a nice crisp lettuce. You forgot to refill your prescription. <laughs> I so, get it. Yeah, I know. It's it's uh when you outweigh the the tinfoil hat stuff with what real good could be done. I I don't want to be in a position to make those decisions. That's for sure. Yeah, but but allied to this, um. I'm delighted we managed to get in that very famous theme tune in, in our next article. A famous theme tune. Famous theme tune. That cheroot-chewing cowboy western. Oh, who, get off my who? lawn. <laughs> <laughs> the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and if you click on the link, you can even listen to... Um, you know, the, the, the iconic sort of sound, certainly, oh, girl, what's all that all about? <laughs> um, 
just talking this about the uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that's really where you're trying to look at some of the advantages and disadvantages of a central bank digital currency, because it's a bit of a theme going based on what the uh, they're doing in the in the states. And I know this is something in Europe they're they're developing a program to look at a central bank digital euro. We've also got a project going for sterling. Um, actually, the Bank of International Settlement reckon ninety percent of their members all over the world um, are actually pursuing projects to look at central bank digital currencies. And and at a macro level, we, again, we have looked at these numbers before, um, but there's still 1.8 billion people around the world that that have no no, no engagement with the financial s- sector. You know, they they are unbanked. And we came across some. I, th- I thought some really interesting numbers um, that they were saying that if you could actually um, have engagement with the unbanked you could actually see a, a substantial boost in the gdp my goodness don't we need it at the moment with the way markets are sort of you know performing and the economy is actually declining and um ernst and young the, the the consulting and accounting firm reckon that in some countries like india and kenya you could see their gdp grow by as much as 30 percent so I- interesting to see how that could actually happen um despite our concerns about privacy james now, I was reading this article, and I I used to be a very big Russell Brand fan. Uh, I think he's hilarious, right? Yep. So do you want to explain who Russell Brand is? Cause... Oh, and that's the pro- – well, that's part of my problem, and, and I want to stay positive, <laughs> right? But we're back to – I have this thing about influencers, and you're a comedian. Entertain me. Even if I agree, let's let's pretend for a moment – that I agree about his stance on CBDCs. Wouldn't someone like Jasmine Bertels have, in theory, a stronger influence on that opinion based on her industry than, say, Russell she Brand? She, she spends most of her time looking at personal finances, and you know, she she that's her job, that's her profession. Whereas right. As, con- whereas it's not Russell Brand's profession, and I'm not no. questioning who wrote the article or why we included him. It's uh, not at all. Why are we allowing him to be so vocal, regardless of if we agree with him or not? I mean, there's plenty of people that I agree with where I still want to say to myself, stop talking. Just stop talking. Right? Of course, Elon Musk is going to talk poorly about Chevrolet. Maybe that's even a bad example. Well, this this goes to the the underlying issue, and that is that um, in the past... And we were speaking that just before we came on air. There were certain, um, let's call them publications, newspapers that had very, very high editorial standards. And, and you would read them and you'd know that the what they'd written about um, had been researched. They had done the due diligence and therefore there was more than just a grain of truth. But now we're seeing those same publications. Quite frankly, they're, they're, they're no better than the sort of you know, gutter snipe. Um, press that we see where people just it's almost as a comic that they use they use to entertain you rather than inform you but you have someone like Russell Brand who is an influencer simply because he has over 6 million people that look at and listen to him on on YouTube therefore arguably he has you know an impact on society look at in your country you know Tom Brady you know everyone's saying oh my goodness you know he was the one endorsing FTX and the like and now people are trying to have a go at Tom Brady he, he was just paid a sum of money to, you know, put his name to to a company. But these influencers, <laughs> I bet he'll never do that again. 
Well, but, but also allied to that is the political lobbyists, which is a particular problem in, in the US, much more so, um, I believe, than in many other countries, where there are literally thousands, tens of thousands of people. You know, when we were in Washington a couple of months ago, James, you know, Washington's awash with political lobbyists. And, and this the reason this is relevant to what we're talking about is that a lot of the things that are going on in society, um, whether it be things like the metaverse, um, whether it be central bank digital currencies, um, there's a huge amount of confusion and misinformation. And again, I, I, without sounding sort of boring, because I've said it so many times, the best thing that blockchain technology brings, whether it's in the financial sector, the fashion sector, the agricultural sector, you know, we've talked about it ad nauseum. It brings transparency. But the trouble is those organizations with vested interests don't want transparency. They don't want to be caught and found out. And therefore, the, the, the use of this technology is something which many organizations and governments are fighting because for the first time we're seeing technology which actually is enabling in conjunction with things like smart contracts and artificial intelligence. It's going to start replacing humans and making the process and making systems much more transparent um, much cleaner and much more compliant and brings many, many advantages to society and business, but at the disadvantage of the incumbent industries that are quite frankly being misleading us in, in the same way, without getting too sort of uh, political about this, in the same way religion has for years. For years, you weren't able to actually um, talk about, you weren't able, you know, the church didn't allow, you know, it, its communicants to, to read and write. That was something which was only reserved for, for you know, the clergymen. You weren't even allowed to have women in. You know, it had to only be men. And, and so the, these things get broken down. But technology is forcing through a pace of change much, much faster than we've seen um, for, for, well, for, for hundreds of years. Right. And, and, and uh, see, I, I, my opinion is, is not all that positive on CBDCs. So I look for the positivity a little bit and I say, OK, so think about where Swift announced, well, guys, it's okay. We're automatically compatible, right? So I say to myself, okay, good. That's one less thing, right? So we don't have to train people uh, or banks, right? And then you have the other argument, well, CBDCs could, in theory, you don't need a commercial bank, right? If you're, you're directly depositing your money into, the, into the, your government, as wild as that might sound, why wouldn't a bunch of banks go, hey, wait a minute. Why are why why are we even helping you test this? It's just it's, so it's wild. It, it's pretty wild because you do have the. Do you automatically bank the unbanked if it's government funded? It's got the ability to because many of those unbanked actually do have a mobile phone, and and but they can't get a bank account, but they've got a mobile phone. So I think we can only hope that they pick the pros away from the cons and only implement the pros. If we're because we're going this route no matter what. I there's no stopping it. So we could either hate it or ask those questions or, you know, all right, so we're going to bank the unbanked. It's 1.7 billion people. These are big articles. These are, these are, you can have a conversation with hours about CBDCs, human mm -hmm. rights, financial inclusion and equity. I just thought up that uh, those two right there. But, but that's kind of why we put some of these more heavier items because we think it's important that people are aware of some of the advantages and disadvantages and then be aware of, um, you know, some of those challenges.
and, and they need to be informed to have a view because because it's not it's not something which these aren't lightweight topics this isn't oh should i have a bit of a punt with um you know a cryptocurrency which i may or may or might not lose money you know central bank digital currencies are going to impact your lives good and bad good we and will bad. give it so a, which, we will give it a cool name like fed coin <laughs> yeah we have to yeah but james we we ought to stop rambling on we've got um coming up after the break um delighted to be welcoming back um arrow capital be interesting to see how they've been getting on so arrow capital is a a fund of funds and the funds they invest in are crypto funds so it'll be very interesting to see um what peter hamanach has got to say about the state of the markets and what's been going on and um, where he sees some interesting opportunities and where there's been some challenges over the last few months since we last had him on the show. So uh, that's uh, Arrow Capital coming up after the break. Hi, my name's Johnny Fry, and each week I sit down with James Tiley on Cyber.fm and record the Digital Byte show, looking at how, where and why blockchain technology and digital assets are being used in different industries and different countries. If you'd like your free copy, then simply go to digitalbytes.substack.com and we'll send you a weekly newsletter every week. This is real-time music playing, cryptocurrency-paying, free money radio, cyber.fm. Hey guys, James, I'm back here with Johnny Fry and you brought our friend. We've done this before with Aero Capital. It's Peter Habermacher, and he wrote an article this, this past week about the... Uh, DAOs and the centralization of voting power. Johnny, why don't you go grill them about that? <laughs> Thanks, James. Peter, welcome to Digital Byte Show and uh, delighted you're back with us. Um, a slight apology because I think you must have a bit of jet lag. You've just flown in from Singapore back to London today, haven't you? Yeah. Firstly, thanks for having me. And yeah, it's um, basically kind of landed at 5 this morning. So somehow I'm still going, not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear well very sorry he's but... gonna say nothing i say should be taken as fact now <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah but no knowing peter he's 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 got all he's, he's sharp as a button as they say but uh, peter you've written about dows so i've got to first of all you know what on earth is a dow um because um we keep hearing a lot a lot of conversation about it and i i'm, I'm absolutely it's very interesting because um maybe the dows aren't quite as you say decentralized some people think they are but so it'd be interesting to get your thoughts you know what why you got the inspiration for this and perhaps explain your you know your your thoughts around DAOs as structures uh, sure yeah so first like DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations as well, a, that's a mouthful isn't it yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of to some extent they're kind of it meant to be an evolution of um kind of traditional companies in some senses is the first evolution of companies since the 1600s when they were first created um and the idea with DAOs, like pretty much anything crypto is to remove the middleman and to decentralize things and to essentially make things better and better by doing that and to some extent like DAOs is essentially designed to make companies essentially more democratic so um, the actual users of a service um, and an ecosystem can have um, kind of more of a say in how that service evolves um, and how 
kind of different stakeholders can have a direct kind of say and voting power and things. So instead of it being a chief executive and a board of directors essentially making all of the decisions of a company, and the DAO, the idea is that um, can actually um, buy in, uh, buy a token, and this token gives you essentially a right to vote and participate in the decision-making of um, this community. Okay, so so in in the UK we ha- we have we have sort of real fuddy duddy stuff going a hundred years, and they're called golf clubs. And you're a member of a golf club, and the, and the people that are members of the golf club, they own the golf club. So if it ever gets sold for for housing estates, which it has done over the years, different clubs, the members you know get a lot of money, and they pick up a yeah. lot of cash. But the but the golf club is run by the members for the members, and and that's similar to a DAO, isn't it? Yeah, in kind of many circumstances, yes. Um, normally, the original founders and the people that actually help build the network are the biggest holders of a token. Um, and they, they kind of essentially reward them for their hard work. So to some extent, instead of being paid in US dollars, they're paid in kind of like a share of the network. And if the product that they're building the network that the build is good and successful they get rewarded for it but then also users can come in buy a lot of the token um and obviously a big user has a big interest in the way a particular service grows and evolves over time so anyone who wants to kind of be involved and have a large say because they've got an interest be that a customer a seller another developer or just an investor um can essentially buy in to the community via the token and then have a say proportional to how much of the token they buy. And obviously the more of a say they want and the more important community is for them, the more of the token they buy and so the more of a say they have. Okay. So so the, but the trouble is is if if let's say you and I go and um you know set up a DAO and we do all the initial programming and then we ended up, let's just say between us with 51% of the tokens, yeah. then it's really a DAO for you and me because the DAO does what you and I voted for because it's a bit like us having 50% of the shares in a company. So it's then it's not really for the community. It's just, is there a community of people that want to go along with what you and I think because we've effectively got control of it? Um, to some extent, yes. Um, and kind of the kind of centralisation of power among the, particularly the founding team is kind of one of the key issues which kind of are highlighted in my article yeah some kind of counter arguments against this though as particularly if you have to buy into a DAO um and kind of the kind of the governance tokens actually have value the biggest holders of the token have the most to lose if they make decisions which are not in the benefit of the service or the community especially given in blockchain you don't really have um kind of intellectual property rights it's all open source so if the users don't like what me and you decide for the uh, DAO then people can essentially copy kind of what we do set up shop somewhere else and run it their way that makes sense and so we stand to lose the most if we essentially annoy our biggest customers okay so so, so this this comes back to the, the, the you know the, the the nub of what and I appreciate um you know for, for many many of our existing listeners we often use the word transparency because when you start using blockchains, you know, one of the advantages, sometimes it can be disadvantage. You don't want to be totally transparent, but the information is much more transparent. And what you're saying, therefore, if 
you know, you and I have come up with with some snazzy new code. We've got the DAO. We've got 51 percent. Um, and then suddenly we decide to do things which the wrestling community don't like because it's transparent. They could actually take some of our code and set up a DAO or some sort of structure that they do like, but they've used. It's a bit like having a patent, I suppose, in the sense that you, to get a patent and get all the tax advantages and the IP benefit of that. You've got to make it open for all to see. That means other people could copy it potentially, uh, or slightly amend it, though. Yeah. It's... Okay. And and in your article, you talked about the, you, you talked about the Dow tension triangle. Now, I presume that's not something you bash with a stick and make a ting tong sound in the orchestra. Yeah. So it's one interesting concept that there's no perfect way to essentially design um, a Dow in terms of giving people a voice. Um, so like trying to decentralize it, being able to make quick and effective decisions and also keep um, kind of people involved and motivated to, um, and kind of loyal and kind of stop them essentially copying our code and going somewhere else. And there's no way to kind of, so it's essentially a tension between kind of all three of, there's got to be some compromise. You can't, uh, fulfill all three criteria of keeping people loyal, um, being able to have everyone have proposals and for everyone to be able to vote and everything at the same time. Right. So 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 it's really recognizing that there are yeah. almost conflicting conflicting elements in, in, in any organizational structure in the sense that yeah. um some people, you know, a little bit more verbose and want, want to be what want their voice held, whereas other people perhaps um, you know, maybe they've got a big chunk of the DAO and, and they they feel, well, actually, I'm one of the bigger owners of the DAO and I want to the DAO to go in a certain way, but I'm not going to shout and scream about it, but I still feel that my wishes should be respected because I've either put money in or put time in to put myself in a position where I've got a big stake in the DAO. Yeah. And, I mean, ideally, kind of, you'll give like, everyone an individual voice and everyone will be able to come up with like their proposals, but if you get kind of 10,000 people come up with kind of um, kind of a proposal for, for every week, then you're just going to kind of cause a lot of disillusionment because it's like impossible to vote on so many proposals for people to actually vote in an informed way on so much, so many different proposals. So to some extent, you need to constrain the number of proposals and have good proposals as opposed to kind of, um, kind of hundreds of people essentially coming up with a very kind of tweaked version of the same proposal um, yeah. but if you restrict them um, who can have like, come up with proposals and also you know, vote in them to some extent or have a meaningful vote again um, people are like okay I don't really have a say so what's the point in voting and so then it just become, collapses onto kind of a concentrated set of core individuals and so essentially to some extent end up again with um, a board large structure for a company because you only have a handful of individuals who really actively kind of make decisions for the organisation. I've got it. Yeah. Okay. And and Peter, I'm I'm interested. I know it's, you didn't touch on your article, but I'm interested. Um, you know, you you you're at Arrow Capital. You're you're managing a fund of funds, so it's a fund that invests in other funds. And I'm interested in two aspects of that. One is, are you seeing other funds? investing more in DAOs and the second question is are you seeing some of your potential investors in your funds um, expressing any view in DAOs I, I like them I dislike them or just 
I've heard about them. Can you explain it? What's what's your state? What's your feeling for, for those two sorts? I DAOs are being used more, and and also from your investors, is there is there much interest and demand for you to be exposed to these things? So I mean, DAOs at the moment is more or less an experimental technology, and we're still kind of figuring out what structures and kind of um, kind of mechanisms work best and which don't work so well, and how DAOs work in proportion to um, kind of this kind of this kind of life as of the project. So at the beginning of a project, um, it's much easier to get a project off the ground when um, kind of you have a very kind of concentrated set of decision makers and a small like team that control everything. But then as kind of established and it's much easier easier to kind of decentralize things and have the community running it um, when there aren't of like major major updates constantly coming through if that makes sense um because there's a trade-off inefficiency so more centralization made things more efficient which is required to get a project initially off the ground uh decentralization um makes things less efficient but it gives people more of a voice when there's okay. less to evolve quickly and so that's one key consideration there's lots of experimentation of lots of different models a lot well most of them won't work. Uh, we expect um, you know, DAOs to kind of essentially settle into kind of a small number of uh, common you know, structures and ways in which to work. Um, at the moment, we're just seeing a lot of different ideas, a lot of experimentation. Most of them will ultimately fail as with any new technology. Yeah. Um, in terms what, of, about from the invest- what about from the investor's point of view? Are you seeing, um, you know, I, I know you've been recently talking to um, you know, high net worths and uh, family offices in in the middle in the far east. Um, uh, does the conversation of DAOs does it come up? Is it something? Is it a source of conversation, or is it still more quite technical and it's not it's not necessarily on the agenda? Yeah, it's still quite technical, and it's only brought up by you know essentially crypto native and you know, technical investors who already know quite a lot about the space. More traditional investors are who are still. Uh, Educated themselves in the space and got small amounts of money in this space. Um, this is typically something. Um, that okay, is so talking about your crypto techie nerdy people, James, yeah. are you there? Because you know a little bit about DAOs. Did you just call me a technical geek. Oh, I certainly did. It's a compliment, though, isn't it? It's better than calling you a Yankee Doodle. Yeah, I guess in this case, I guess it would be. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm familiar with DAOs, and and I have um well, up until recently, what I thought was the unpopular opinion. But um, I suppose my question for, for Peter, because I, I'm aware of what happened with Solana and Soland, and um, I've seen it personally happen elsewhere. A direct, a, sir, God, I don't want to use certain words, but I guess I, I have to, right? So is it fair to say that a more republic-based DAO would, would be attractive to investors or people, uh, whereas you have representatives representing the the majority and then they vote because the 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 lopsided unequal or inequitable amount of tokens being distributed for voting purposes it just i don't see it i i think it's absolutely it doesn't make sense to me yeah so i mean not first well not always in dallas but also in kind of um some layer ones like eos that's been kind of very much like um, kind of more delegated voting models taken up again 
that very much have the pros and cons. Um, I mean, the key thing about delegated voting power is, again, it concentrates um, kind of the power in the hands of few and also kind of then things get very political um, in terms of people trying to win votes and are kind of the representatives who are trying to get voted in and telling the truth. Um, and, I mean, as with any kind of voting system, those are always pros and cons and not just is it you no know, direct democracy versus um, kind of a representative it's the entire system around that which um ultimately matters and what you're voting on um depends on what the best system is like whether it's one or the other it depends on the specific situation if that makes sense there's no one size fits all or one is per se better than the other and and actually, that raises another important thing that was on my mind. Do how does regular people, right? They're not going to be able to read smart contracts. You know, for example, Solidity, right? Is there are these DAOs or or in the future? How do we present this to regular people and say, "I want to join a DAO"? Because eventually, I do see it. Remember, you, you ever have grandparents belong to like an investment club, right? Where all, they're all chipping in their pension to buy one share of Google at a time, you know, and it's, it's more of a hobby, but they're staying involved in the market. So how does, how does grandma and grandpa in, of the future, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to read smart contracts. So can, is there a way for these rules and regulations to be immutable, but outside of the smart contract? Um, there are certain kind of, as it were, um, kind of coding languages, which, um, aren't in computer code um, and kind of something which were everyday people would understand. The downside of these um, more visual um, coding languages is that they're very inefficient in terms of the fast, slower um, to run than kind of the everyday kind of coding languages we use these days. One thing is that um, the number of people who can code is constantly growing and um, in the future, it is likely to be a requirement for a very large proportion of jobs. Um, however, there is always going to be essentially this trade-off between people who can you know, directly order the code and those who, those who can't. And, I mean, the DAOs these days uh, sort of get around this problem with uh, people who can't read code, um, essentially um, delegating their vote to um, trusted parties who can. So, James, I should imagine it's going to end up being not dissimilar to what we see in the equity world. You know, most people don't trade stocks and shares. There's a few people, but they end up leaving it to, you know, a, a, a fund manager or an index fund. And just that's it. They just invest in that mutual fund and away it goes. And I should imagine you're going to end up um, seeing a similar thing with DAOs. Um, or even you're going to see a whole series of smart contracts. You can say, look, if do you, these are the sort of criteria that you're looking for and you have a smart contract then written for you by a in a bit like a wealth advisor today but it's probably going to be a programmer and then that smart contract goes out and looks for DAOs that has those sort of characteristics so you're actually you're actually intermediating something which should have been disintermediated but i could see that potentially coming down the line at some stage um, and one thing is um kind of smart contracts um for um yeah common kind of functions are likely to become pretty standardized um, as you essentially want kind of use smart contracts that have been tried and tested and not new ones. 
Um, and so at the moment, yeah, there's a lot of innovation in smart contracts, but over time, like there's a lot of speed, um, kind of a small number of smart contracts, which I use the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of the time because, yeah, why to take the risk on a new kind of smart contracts, which hasn't stood the test of time, but that's one that hasn't been compromised in 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Peter, fascinating. And thank thank you very much for coming back on the show. Um, and I would thoroughly recommend, um, you know, if you're interested in DAOs um, and you want to know a little bit more, um, Peter's article from Mara Capital, very, very interesting. There's a, some various graphs and statistics in there. And I think the the I think that probably the takeaways here is that not all DAOs are are the same. Some of them are indeed controlled. Um, some of them are actually very, very widely held and not not necessarily controlled by a few number of people. But this is very much a learning curve. And, and you know, we find in our travels that people are discussing the pros and cons of DAOs um, as we're trying to search for new ways, as you say, Peter, to have organisations run and manage. So be interesting over the over the few months, and I'm sure we'll get you back next year, um, as if you're seeing more DAOs coming or as a as a theme, as an idea, is, is it, has it withered on a vine? So... Hopefully we'll be able to get back, um, you know, in touch with you, say, the new year and uh, get an update on how things are going. But uh, thank you for joining us on 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 the show today. And um, we look forward to speak to you again in a few months time. Thank you for having me.